You are about to hear the real history of Earth Day, the authentic history. And you'll learn in this historical account that Earth Day, founded in 1970, has more to do with the color red than the color green. And now that I have your attention, hello everybody, I'm Brian Sussman. This is the Brian Sussman Show podcast. A little bit about me in case you're brand new to the podcast and brand new to me. I have backgrounds in radio, TV, film production. I have a background in journalism as well as meteorology. I received many awards for meteorology. And in fact, for a period of time, I was about five years, I was on the American Meteorological Society's Board of Education. So I'm no slouch when it comes to meteorology. And I think it's interesting that I also know something about journalism and production. So here we are. They all meld together very well. In 2010, I wrote a book that was quite popular. In fact, it was a bestseller. It was entitled Climategate, A Veteran Meteorologist Exposes the Global Warming Scam. In 2012, I came out with another book. It's a follow-up. It's called Eco-Tyranny, How the Left's Green Agenda Will Dismantle America. Now, those are, those are strong titles. I get it. Strong titles that have content that backs up the strength of the title. So I hope, I hope you have the courage to continue listening. Because again, what you're about to hear flies in the face of the media narrative. Flies in the face of everything perhaps you've learned at school since you were in kindergarten. But I'll begin with a brief history of Earth Day. And then I'm going to go into some facts and figures that... I believe you're going to find astounding. So, first of all, the authentic history of Earth Day. I have an article at briansussman.com that denotes everything I'm about to tell you right here. It's, quite frankly, a 600-word summary of, of the book Climategate. But let's begin on October 22nd, 1970. A trio of radical dreamers established the first Earth Day. And they were hoping it would become an annual event. And it did indeed become an annual event, and it's lasted now for decades. An annual event designed to assault capitalism and free markets, and quite frankly, mankind. The initial concept was conceived by a senator from Wisconsin. His name was Gaylord Nelson. Now, Nelson was Congress' leading environmental activist at the time. He was so far ahead of his time in terms of environmentalism and being an, an activist thereof. He kind, of, he kind of created the mold for all of today's environmental activists who are in political places of power. Nelson was Congress's leading environmental activist and the mastermind behind something that was taking place in the 70s. Some of you old-timers will remember this. They were the teach-ins, teach-ins. They were very popular in the late 60s, early 70s. But for those of you who weren't around back then, during the teach-ins, you would have these mutinous school instructors. They, would, they were defying the administration, but they were able to get away with it. 
They were defying the administration. They would scrap the day's assigned curriculum and then pressure students to sit cross-legged on the floor. Now, I mean, you know how it works when you're a student. Okay, everyone, we're going to sit cross-legged on the floor. Well, the person who doesn't want to do that is going to feel like an outcast. I mean, it's, it's peer pressure. So everyone would sit cross-legged on the floor and then what they called it back in the day, rap, rap or talk. Rap about how America was an imperialist nation and then discuss why communism wasn't such a bad idea. It just needed to be implement, implemented properly. I, I distinctly remember this, 1970. I'm going to give away my age. I'm an old guy. I was a freshman in high school. I distinctly remember this. This was Mr. Bischoff's class. My family had moved from California. We were now living in a place called Glenview, Illinois. It's a suburb of Chicago, Glenbrook South High School, which by all accounts was a, a, a highly sought after high school in terms of the way it excelled above and beyond measure compared to other schools in the area and even other schools in the United States of America. Mr. Bischoff was, he was, he was an otherwise nice guy, but I, I, I remember at the time, again, what, I'm, I'm a freshman in high school. I'm what, 14 years old? I remember he was a hippie. You could tell by his hair and his round John Lennon glasses. He was a hippie. And he was our, he was our earth studies teacher. And so Mr. Bischoff, you know, scrapped the school, the day's assigned curriculum, and we all started rapping about America in ways in which I'd never heard before in a classroom. Now, I was brought up by a father and mother who knew a little bit about communism. Uh, my father's family escaped Russia. They escaped Karl Marx. And the first political leader, the first Marxist political leader of any nation, Vladimir Lenin. My father's family escaped all of that and came to the United States. My mother's family was a little different. They came to the United States and they were card-carrying communists. They, absolute, now, this changed later in life when they became born-again Christians, but they were card-carrying communists. In fact... When my grandmother died, we, we were rummaging through her stuff. We found the card. And this probably explains why uh, my brother and I simultaneously, this was really interesting, uh, we both, we do a lot of things simultaneously. We have no idea that the other guy's doing the same thing. But we both, uh, we both made inquiries into become a part of the CIA. It's crazy. I didn't even know how this happened. And we were both flatly rejected. Well, I think it's because they discovered, in short order probably, that we had one side of the family that indeed were communists. Well, all that said, I grew up in a family. My mother and my father were so opposed to communism. I never heard them calling themselves conservatives. I, I knew they were Republicans, but man, they were so vehemently against communism. I, I grew up in that kind of environment. So I, I kind of knew somebody who was flying against the grain when I saw them. And Mr. Bischoff was, again, super nice guy. I, 
I don't think he was a card-carrying communist, but he was just, he was seeing America through a different lens than that in which I was brought up. So now we're talking about Earth Day, this first Earth Day, and we're talking about America being an imperialist nation, and we're, we're discussing why things like communism weren't really a bad idea, just needed to be implemented properly. This was happening all over the country. Now, Senator Nelson's successful teach-in efforts were aided by a young man named Dennis Hayes. Dennis Hayes. I think Dennis Hayes is still alive. He was, uh, prior to all of this, he was a student body president while at Stanford University. So, you know, academically, a very bright guy. Um, he was a go-getter, becomes president of Stanford. And he was well-known for organizing anti-Vietnam War protests. And then rounding out this troika was Professor Paul Ehrlich. Paul Ehrlich was also at Stanford University. I, I, he retired as a professor emeritus. Uh, he is he's still a big deal on the left and in environmental circles. He's a very old guy now. But in 1968, Ehrlich, I assume he's alive. I haven't checked Wikipedia of late. But in 1968, Ehrlich authored this Malthusian missive entitled The Population Bomb. The Population Bomb. It was a mega bestseller. And in The Population Bomb, he infamously spouted wild allegations like this. This is an exact quote. A cancer is an uncontrolled multiplication of cells. The population explosion is an uncontrolled multiplication of people. We must shift our efforts from treatment of the symptoms to the cutting out of the cancer. Did you hear what I just said? The population explosion is an uncontrolled multiplication of people, he said, after talking about cancer being an uncontrolled multiplication of cells. And then he says that we need to cut out the cancer, the people that are overpopulating the planet. He concludes this statement by saying, the operation will demand many apparently brutal and heartless decisions. You know, I've spoken over the years to so many people. I've had, you know, lots of debates about my positions on, on environmentalism. And listen, I'm all for, I'm all for a clean environment. I love the environment, love hiking, love gazing. I love, I love doing stuff outdoors, you know, and I want it to be pristine. But I'm just telling you something. I've had so many debates over the years, publicly and one-on-one, with people who believe that there are too many on the planet, too many people on the planet. And so I've asked them. Oftentimes I've heard, I think Bill Gates is one of these who prescribes to the number 600 million. I think Paul Ehrlich as well. But they believe that the optimum number of people on the planet is 600 million. That's interesting because Elon Musk came out today with a statement saying, you know, the earth could handle many more times people that, than it has now. And he's absolutely right. And I write about that, interestingly, in Climategate back in 2010. But... You know, there's 600 million people, 600 million. Right now there are, what, 7 or 8 billion? So people want to reduce the number. There are some people 
in high places in the environmental movement who believe we should reduce the population from seven or eight billion to 600 million. And so I've asked these people, well, how are we going to do that? Is it, is it a war? Nuclear war? Is it some kind of pandemic? Is it, is it just going out and lining people up and killing them? I never get an answer from these people. They don't have an answer on how we're to get to that magic number of 600 million, but they insist that's what we must, must do to save the planet. Rather interesting, isn't it? Now, continuing here, 1969. Uh, so Ehrlich writes the population bomb in 68. In 69, we have just all sorts of stuff going on in the United States. Uh, the Woodstock Music and Art Fair and the, the, the drugs in San Francisco and the explosion of music. It just, it's just a, a, a crazy time of cultural revolution in the United States, which spilled over into the world. But Senator Nelson in 69 met with Ehrlich and said this, my God, why not a national teaching movement on the environment? Now, Hayes was brought in because, you know, Hayes knew something about this. Uh, he was the guy that, you know, helped with so many things in terms of, in terms of just organization and activism. So you had Gaylord Nelson, who came up with the teach-in idea. You had Hayes, who was really a counterculture guy who knew how to activate people. And then you had Ehrlich, who was a professor and an incredibly well-known and esteemed professor who wrote this book, The Population Mob. So they all get together. And Nelson meets with Ehrlich and says, my God, why not a national teach-in on the environment? Let's bring in Hayes. And so they get together and they put it all together and they come up with a name for this event. It's going to be called Earth Day. Wow. Talk about, in, talk about genius marketing, Earth Day. And they had to pick a date for this, so they chose April 22nd, 1970. Hmm. What's interesting about that date? It's the birthday of Russian dictator Vladimir Lenin. In fact, 19, April 22nd, 1970 was his centennial. He would have been 100 years. Vladimir Lenin, as I write about, oh my gosh, I write about this in, in Climate Gate, I write about this in Eco Tyranny. He was an he was he was an environmentalist's environmentalist. The things he wrote about regarding the environment set the tempo for everyone writing about the environment to this very day who's on the left. I I, I, it, I have it in detail in my book. It's it's irrefutable. In a New York Times article published the morning after the first day, headlined, Angry Coordinator of Earth Day, young Dennis Hayes bragged that five years earlier, he had fled overseas, quote, because I had to get away from America. Hayes was so committed to his anti-capitalist cause that he left America. Well, he had come back and now he's there with Earth Day. And he even made sure that the Earth Day organization, he was so committed to this cause of environmentalism, 
He made sure the Earth Day organization did not even produce Earth Day bumper stickers. And in this article in the New York Times, he says, you want to know why? Because they go on automobiles. This is the guy who couldn't stand the automobile in 1970. Didn't want bumper stickers. Now, environmentalists have always admired Lenin. He was the first disciple of Karl Marx to gain control of a country. And the opening act of his seven-year reign in Russia commenced with the abolition of all private property. This was a Marxist priority, no private property. Vladimir Lenin got a hold of a country and said, rule number one, following Karl Marx, no private property. Now, despite overseeing a bloody civil war and a devastated economy and a citizenry without hope, Lenin made it a top priority to implement his signature decree. It's, it's quite a read. It's entitled On Land. And in On Land, I talk about it in my books, you can find it online, he declared that all forests, all waters, all minerals be the exclusive property of the state. And he demanded these resources be protected from use by the public and private enterprise. Forests, waters, lands, minerals, people out. In fact, selling timber or firewood, mining minerals, or diverting water for farming was illegal under Lenin's Russia, in Lenin's Russia. You see, my friends, Earth Day has never been a celebration of the beauty and bounty of this awesome terrestrial ball. Instead, it's always been an assault on man. During the first decade of Earth Day observances, and see, this was so, so well-structured, was so perfectly progressive. During the first decade of Earth Day, observances uh, proclaimed that people were a polluter. People were the polluter. By the 80s, you know, people were involved with, with litter and people were involved in dirtying up the water. So it was, it was all about people and litter and trash and, and people pollution, etc. So that was the 80s. Or I should say the 70s. By the 80s, the event's organizers cast mankind as something even, even, even greater or worse, if you will. They were tree killers. Save the trees. <laughs> I love that to this very day. You get uh, some of these environmentalists who were raised in the 80s and, you know, they're, they're doing fairly well in life in terms of their livelihoods. And as soon as they buy a house or remodel a house, they're all about saving the trees, but they want hardwood floors. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Now they, they want that Tesla because it's carbon neutral. Oh, really? <laughs> Have you thought about all the carbon dioxide that was necessary that was pumped up into the atmosphere? 
<laughs> to mine the minerals necessary for those batteries, you know, those 1,200 batteries in the chassis of a Tesla that can't be recycled. <laughs> oh, gosh. But I'm carbon neutral. Oh, really? Okay. So 80s, the events organizers cast mankind as the tree killer. 90s, humans evolved into the animal species annihilator. The global warming scare never really became popular until the late 90s. And when it did, man alive, it provided these compatriots at the Earth Day headquarters with the ultimate hook to hang their red berets on. Humans, particularly Americans, were now screwing up the entire planet's climate. Of course, now, once again, we have an administration in Washington made up of fellow travelers who were in school for that first Earth Day, and they lapped up every word, and for now, they control the levers of power. So that's the history of Earth Day, but I want to get into some fun facts for you that I hope you will find very useful when discussing these things with people who, don't, uh, who aren't on the same page with you. To do this, let me go to my book, Climate Gate. This is a chapter entitled Rigged Record, Rigged Record. And I will just uh, read a few things to you that I'm hoping will be enlightening. First of all, carbon dioxide, we were just talking about the Tesla. Carbon dioxide only accounts for less than 1% of the gases in the Earth's atmosphere. 1%. And of that sliver, only 3% is created through anthropogenic means. So in other words, all the CO2 in the atmosphere, only 1%, excuse me, all the gases in the atmosphere, all the gases in the atmosphere, only 1% of those gases are carbon dioxide. And only 3% of the carbon dioxide is created through anthropogenic means, created by humankind. Additionally, while carbon dioxide has been steadily increasing at a snail's pace since the end of the Little Ice Age, and not to be casual with terms, but the Little Ice Age began around 1300 and it continued really till about 1850. Temperatures were incredibly colder during this period. It was a miserable time for planet Earth There were plagues. In fact, the pilgrims arrived on the shores of New England during the Little Ice Age, and and it almost turned out to be an event that killed all of them. Anyway, while carbon dioxide has been steadily increasing at a snail's pace since the end of the Little Ice Age, the claim that the gas caused a post-1970 hockey stick spike and the hottest temperatures ever is pure chicanery. And, and even if it were true, I write, how does that explain that the hottest weather ever recorded in modern history, at least, was back in the 1930s? It's true. When CO2 levels from fossil fuels were immeasurable. So we had this, this big spike. We're coming out of the Little Ice Age, and we had this big temperature spike in the 1930s. Now, Today's scientists will say, no, there was a hockey stick spike. You know, lay a hockey stick down flat, and there's the the actual blade of the stick. 
Yeah, that's what's happened to temperature since 1970. No, 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 no. The big spike was in the 1930s. In fact, since the 1930s, since the 1930s, you can actually see a decrease in global temperatures because the spike in the 30s was just so great. But we can get into that a little later if we get into it at all. The summer of 1930 marked, you can read, read the book if, if nothing else, but the summer of 1930 marked the beginning of the longest drought of the 20th century. From June 1st to August 31st, 1930, Washington, D.C. experienced 21 days of temperatures at least 100 degrees. Could you imagine if that happened today? Oh, my gosh. They had no air conditioning back then. They weren't prepared for that kind of weather. It's probably humid as well. Miserable. 21 days of high temperatures of at least 100 degrees. During that record-shattering heat wave, maximum temperatures were set on nine different days, records that remain unbroken all this time later. In 1934, bone dry regions stretched from New York across the Great Plains and into the Southwest. And there was a dust bowl, a dust bowl. The dust bowl was so bad, many people fled the plains. A lot of people came to California during that period of time. A dust bowl covered about 50 million acres of the South Central Plains during the winter of 1935-1936. In some areas, the drought never broke until 1938. The 30s were miserable. I'm going to give you some other stats in just a moment that are mind-blowing. In fact, out of the 50 states, 22 recorded their all-time high temperature during the 1930s. You ready for some of these readings? I list them out here. There's a whole bunch of them but uh, how about how about Millsboro Delaware July 21 1930 110 degrees <laughs> wow. how's about uh, Monticello Florida June 29 1931 109 Keokuk Iowa July 20th 1934 118 yeah that's hot Medicine Lake Montana July 5th 1937 117 one might fabricate the argument that the incredible temperature rise in the 1930s coincided with the industrialization for sure in America after all, those new smokestacks were producing heat-trapping CO2. But that's faulty logic because during the following three decades, while carbon dioxide levels really did increase, the temperatures decreased. They decreased in the 40s. They decreased in the 50s. They decreased in the 60s and in the early 70s. In fact, people thought we were slipping into another ice age. Now, it's interesting because according to NASA, the average temperature on the planet between 1940 and 1970 actually dropped 0.18 degrees Fahrenheit. This has always bothered many scientists and they've actually tried to, they've actually tried to change the historical record. I have in my book, Climategate, a leaked email 
between two big hobnobs in the anthropogenic global warming movement. They're both PhD scientists, but they talk about, quote, it would be good to remove at least part of the blip, part of the blip. So you know, they want to just somehow massage the data to remove the blips because the blips don't correspond with the outcomes that they would like to see in order to scare the public, to make the public believe that mankind is the problem because of CO2. I go through this in ClimateGate, and it really is a fascinating situation and, quite frankly, disgusting. Now, the truth of the matter is, since the Little Ice Age in the mid-1800s, when it began, since the, middle, uh, since the Little Ice Age, uh, temperatures actually warmed one degree Fahrenheit. So let's just say since 1850 to present, temperatures warmed one degree Fahrenheit. That's in almost, uh, what, 170 years one degree Fahrenheit. 1850 corresponds neatly with the Industrial Revolution. And so, therefore, the environmentalists will say, well, it's because of all that pollution being caused by mankind. Well, here's what I would just say. Since 1850, we have billions and billions, countless billions of cars, trucks, buses, trains, planes, using fossil fuels, and emitting carbon dioxide. We have countless billions of homes being heated with natural gas. Fossil fuels are the fuel that runs the world. And if carbon dioxide really is such a big problem and all we can account for in 170 years is one one degree rise in Fahrenheit, and, and all of that when the 1930s were the hottest decade ever, when carbon dioxide was virtually immeasurable. You know, it's interesting because Al Gore was the guy who said, oh, let's see, in his book, Inconvenient Truth, which was written decades ago now, he said deaths from global warming will double in just 25 years to 300,000 people a year. Well, we certainly haven't seen that, have we? But this is the game they like to play. Manipulation of the facts and lots of hyperbole to scare people. I just want to talk a bit more about carbon dioxide because carbon dioxide gets such a bad rap. Carbon dioxide is life-giving. Carbon dioxide, we have... a a finite amount and yet an infinite supply of carbon dioxide. In other words, we're not losing any to outer space, nor is any being added from deliveries by extraterrestrials. The carbon dioxide that is here is here. It's not going away. It's just stored in different places. And there is a carbon dioxide cycle, just like there's a water cycle, except the carbon dioxide cycle is, is slower. Observe the wonderful symbiotic relationship among humans, animals, and plants. Humans and the very various species of animals breathe in the oxygen produced by plants. A wondrous transformation that materializes in our lungs, causing us to exhale CO2, which the plants then breathe. 
It's incredible. It really is a God thing. I mean, there's no other way to explain this. You, you can say, well, it's the, the magic wand of evolution. And that's your right. I'm not going to stop you from doing that, but let's continue this because I don't want, don't want to get into theology. Let's just stay with the science. A wondrous transformation then materializes in our lungs, causing us to exhale CO2, which the plants then breathe. I'm reading from my book, Climacate. Just as fascinating is the relationship plants have with the planet's various other sources of CO2. Decomposing vegetation, the carcasses of dead animals, forest fires, smoldering peat bogs, volcanoes, plowed soil, weathering rocks, human utilization of fossil fuels, and even termites and crustacean shells all exude carbon dioxide beneficial to the plant kingdom. The more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, listen to this, the more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the more content the plants become. Just ask anyone who has worked in a greenhouse. In fact, that is a portion of the carbon dioxide debate that no one bothers to address. The plant kingdom would abound if carbon dioxide levels were to increase in the global atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is is our friend. Carbon dioxide only accounts for a scant 38 thousandths of a percent of our planet's atmosphere. It is a known variable gas because just like water vapor, it has historic, historically fluctuated. You, you can go back and look at the historical scientific record from sometimes some scientists would say we're looking back millions of years and the carbon dioxide levels were incredibly higher than today. You cannot blame humankind for that. The Carboniferous era would be one example. Carbon dioxide levels off the charts. Off the charts. But again, it's a known variable gas because like water vapor, it has historically fluctuated. And what percentage of the minuscule amount of CO2 is produced by the activities of man, including the utilization of fossil fuels? According to a thorough analysis by the Carbon Dioxide Information Analysis Center, a research wing of the U.S. Department of Energy, it's only 3.207%. 3.207%. All of this hoopla over an atmospheric component so important for life. I mean, vital for life. We can't live without it. We cannot live without CO2. So again, I'm going to repeat this critical fact. Carbon dioxide comprises 38 one thousandths of the Earth's atmosphere. And of that amount, a mere 3% is generated by mankind. Oh, here's one more for you. And how much CO2 increased in the atmosphere over the past 150 years? Approximately 35%. That's all. Wish it was much more. I think our plant life would say, bring it on. Bring it on. Are you beginning to understand that global warming is a manufactured crisis, the likes of which might actually cause the ghost of Marx to salute its success? And it only becomes more devious. This is episode number 137 of The Brian Sussman Show. In 138, 
the very next episode, we're going to talk about ice caps. Are they really melting? Hurricanes, are they more than ever? Tornadoes? We'll talk about all of that. I appreciate your listenership. And I hope if you liked what you heard today, it's a little longer podcast than usual. But nonetheless, I think there's been some good content here. Uh, Please share it with a friend. More on me at briansussman.com. God bless you, my friends. Until next time.